Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Just about every educated person knows something about Gettysburg, Shiloh, perhaps Antietam. But today in Civil War Talk Radio, we separate the sheep from the goats. Our guest is James A. Morgan III, author of A Little Short of Boats, The Fights at Ball's Bluff and Edwards Ferry. If you have to ask whatever happened at Ball's Bluff, you're probably listening to the wrong show. If you already know about Edwards Ferry, you've been listening too long. Come back and join us with Jim Morgan on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Remember when you laughed during a business conference? You felt more energized, more alert, and more receptive to the message being delivered. Hi, I'm Russ Dolnack, and I make people laugh. And as a professional humorous speaker, I open up a morning conference session with a laugh or close off the day with a funny recap. It's, it's just a one-of-a-kind experience. Visit RussIsFunny.com right now. Get an audience into it. You know, if they're laughing, it's paying big dividends. They're more relaxed. They're more creative. And if nothing else, a humorous speaker leaves each and every one of them with a smile on their face. You need comedy. Custom, clean, clever comedy. Otherwise, your audience might just goes off. <laughs> just imagine, if you had to listen to hours of serious commentary without a break, come on. Pack some upbeat energy into your next event. Humor works. Find me, Russ Dahlneck, at RussIsFunny.com because, well, Russ's chubby.com was taken. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from my office on the beautiful campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking on behalf of the campus, the university, the history department, or indeed anything but myself and my guest who speaks for him or herself each time. Today's guest is James A. Morgan III, uh, Jim, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Uh, glad to have you today. Thank you, today, Jerry. I'm go- honored to be here. Well, we're, we're glad to have you. We're, you've written a book uh, in a series that looks like called Discovering Civil War America, of which the title is A Little Short of Boats, The Fights at Ball's Bluff and Edwards Ferry. Now, I will say when I got hold of this book, it was it was recommended to me, and someone said you ought to read this, and I thought, well, People do recommend books to me regularly. Uh, we all tell each other about interesting Civil War stuff, but occasionally I will get uh, books or emails more likely from people who say, look, I've written a book on the skirmish of the 32nd Indiana at Rowlett Station 
It's 700 pages and uh, tells the individual blood pressure of every member of the regiment at every moment. Uh, you've got to read it. And my thought at that point is, is for my eyes to glaze over and get sort of uh, short of breath myself and think, I, I don't think I want to read that much about that small an engagement. So when I got uh, your book, it, it went onto the pile of things I, I got to get around to reading sooner or later. Uh, but I have to admit, I was a little concerned it was going to be one of these detailed books on an otherwise tiny incident in the war. And it it was nothing like that. I was, it was pleasantly uh, entertained throughout. I thought it was, it was a very interesting recreation of a fight that is, is certainly not insignificant. We've talked about it before on this show when we had uh, uh, the author of the book in the 20th Massachusetts uh, come on and discuss his work. Uh, Richard Miller's book, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and he he devotes some chapters to that. So I just want to start out by, by saying uh, thank you for not writing uh, 700 pages on Ball's Bluff. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm holding it here in front of me, and I will tell the listeners it is about 300 pages, including the index, of a really uh, well-done uh, really well battle account. How did you get interested in this particular... Uh, engagement. Right. Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that, obviously, um, and I am very happy with the way the book's been received. Uh, how I got interested, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, really was because the Northern Virginia Regional Park Authority several years ago, uh, which is the entity that owns the Balls Bluff Battlefield, uh, wanted to regularize uh, the tours. There really weren't any, and uh, so they organized a guide group, and, and I signed up for that. I really didn't know much really anything about Ball's Bluff at the time, uh, but I just signed up for the guide group, started doing some homework, reading all the books that were out there and the, the OR materials and various things like that, got very interested in the battle, uh, and then as I walked to the field and learned more and more about the battle and was as a guide was telling people the story as I understood it, I began doubting the story. Um, I discovered, to make the long story short, uh, as I got into the, the 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 activity, I began having serious doubts, and then I began looking into original source materials to answer the questions I was having, and I discovered that much of the story, as it had traditionally been told, was simply wrong. And one thing led to another, and I ended up with a book. Uh, we had uh, Ed Bars on uh, just last week on this show, uh, who who is the the king of battlefield walkers. I'm sure you know Ed. Indeed. Uh, and. He made much the same point that you can never really understand a battle without going to the field itself. I, I don't think that's possible at all. First of all, uh, uh, I've been fortunate, like a lot of Civil War people, you know, uh, to know Ed for a while, and he, he honored me by writing the foreword to my book, so I was very, very pleased to, about that. Uh, I mentioned to someone the other day that coming on the week after Ed Bars made me feel a little like the Dave Clark Five coming on the Ed Sullivan Show after the Beatles. Uh, well, but it's better to be the Dave Clark Five than the guy spinning the plates. Out. Oh yeah, oh yeah. At least you're still going to sell some records. So, but but yeah, that's the point. Absolutely, is true that you really do have to walk the battlefield, any battlefield. And with Ball's Bluff, it's fairly easy because it's a very small, very uh, contained battlefield. Um, and that was really doing that was really what gave me my first indication that some of the story was wrong because many of the narratives. Um, the secondary narratives simply do not match the lay of the land. Certain things supposedly happened in certain places. Uh, for example, the spot where Colonel Edward Baker, Senator Edward Baker, 
the friend of Abraham Lincoln who commanded Union troops there. Uh, there's a little marker on the battlefield purportedly uh, at the spot where he was killed, and it, it can't be. It just it just doesn't work. The, the more credible narratives of his death simply don't match the, the, that spot. Now, the narratives don't... Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this incident for a moment, because even those who, who barely have heard of Ball's Bluff, if, if they've heard anything, they know that's where Lincoln's friend Baker was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so we can... I'd, I'd like to go through the, the battle with you in a moment, but let's start with this this point that everyone uh, in the field has heard about. Baker is killed on the field of battle, and there's a marker there today. You say it's not in the right place. I don't believe it is. It's a small stone that uh, actually looks like a gravestone, and indeed a number of people have written that Baker is buried there. He is not. He's buried at the Presidio in San Francisco. He never was buried on the battlefield. The origins of the marker itself are, are somewhat mysterious. Uh, I've documented that it was not there before 1916, though some accounts say it was there as early as the 1890s. It absolutely was not. Um, the spot, though, the, the more credible descriptions of his death say that he was out in the open in front of his troops, several hundred of whom were themselves in the open, and that when he went down with his wound, uh, his, his mortal wound, uh, that a number of his men rushed forward downhill to retrieve his body. And that description, those descriptions simply don't match. It doesn't work, the spot. You can't go downhill from there and go forward. You can go downhill and go down the bluff, but not forward into the battlefield. And also, there's just not room there for, for that kind of thing. So I am convinced, though I cannot absolutely positively prove, that, that Baker could not have been killed where the marker says he was. He was probably killed 100 yards or so forward of that. Now, what about the... The accounts that you have, you, you say they describe the troops rushing forward. The accounts themselves, though, the different accounts that you cite, are not consistent one with the other. There are many of them. Uh, in the book, I note that I had found 39 different accounts of Baker's death. Obviously, some overlap in details, but different enough to be considered different accounts. 39 different versions. Actually, since the book has come out, I've found three more. So there are at least 42 different accounts of his death. Some of them are you can you can simply dismiss uh, by face value. There's a wonderful story about how Colonel Erasmus Burt of the 18th Mississippi and Colonel Baker met like two knights of old, you know, in the middle of the field and engaged in single combat, and and Colonel Burt killed Colonel Baker. That's great, but it's um, you know patently absurd. Uh, and then there are a number of others that speak about an individual Confederate rushing forward and shooting him several times with a pistol. Uh, there are various accounts of him being killed by a volley fired by different units. Someone in every in uh, every Confederate unit pretty much claimed to have killed Baker. So the, the accounts vary, but as I say, there are some that are simply more credible than others uh, because there you have um, a statement by someone, well, for example, the... Uh, Captain Casper Crowninshield of the 20th Massachusetts claims to have actually seen Baker fall and been standing very close to him when he fell. That kind of uh, certainty, that kind of eyewitness account is very, very rare. And Crowninshield, I think, is credible. How, how close to the Union soldiers do you suppose Baker was when this happened? How close to his own men? Right. If well, they rushed forward, how far did they have to go to get him? Well, they rushed forward because they first had to withdraw some distance. So apparently when he went down, a number of other individuals went down, and that was one of the times when the Federals 
uh, retreated. And there was a great deal of back and forth on this battlefield that day with individual federal units or Confederate units rushing forward and the other side retreating and so on. So his men, Baker's men, did withdraw, probably, I think, about to the place where the marker is now, where the Baker stone is now. And then they had to rush forward again. So I think we're probably talking something uh, along the lines of, uh, oh, probably less than 100 yards, but uh, from the point where he was killed to the point where they withdrew, maybe 50 to 60 yards. That's that's a guess. Okay. Now, let me ask you a, a tough question. Uh, you've got all these accounts that Baker was, was killed in one place, so he's probably not killed at the spot where the marker is. The marker really should be moved 100 yards. Um, well, that's my opinion. I, that's based on the research I've done. I I think it's in the wrong place. Okay. Well, let let, let me. What I want to throw at you is this. Uh, you may have heard the old uh, observation uh, by ancient scholars of ancient texts that the Odyssey was not actually composed by Homer, but by a different blind Greek poet of the same name who lived 50 years earlier. Um, Okay. The, the, the point being that what what the heck is the difference? Okay, it wasn't Homer the blind guy. It was a different Homer the blind guy, a different ten years, fifty years earlier. What, so what difference does it make where he was killed? Right. Oh, probably what? none in terms of understanding the battle. It's just one of those things that if you're trying to understand a battle, uh, you want to know the details. You want to get the little things right. Uh, and in doing so, hopefully, you'll help get the big things right. In a sense, though, it it makes a difference because if he in fact was killed back where that marker is then then you had quite a few union troops um, who were so backed up to the bluff earlier in the afternoon than they should have been than than the than credible accounts say they were that it becomes um, uh, uh, almost a, a complete oh, what's the word i'm looking for just almost a, a complete sort of melee when at that point it wasn't. It did become that later on, but uh, Baker was in command of his troops, and they were organized. The 1st California uh, was in one place. The 20th Massachusetts was next to them. They were putting up a good fight. This was not just a mob. And if he were back, if he were killed back where that stone is, it almost had to have been a mob because there's no place for them to have actually been there in an orderly fashion. So this one detail helps us piece together what else is happening it may not be in itself critical but it does but the story to make the story hang together certain things have to happen at certain times well i don't want to overemphasize that one detail it is just one detail it it just happens i mentioned it really because it happened to be one of the first things that caught my attention when i first got into this uh, as a mistake as something that didn't quite fit i was telling a standard story and this little detail of the location of this of Baker's death didn't work for me and it was one of the things that pushed me to look for other things and eventually find other things um, that resulted in um, my belief that much of the story was was wrong well let's go back and talk talk about the big picture then and see how how this fits in uh, the there are many controversies involved historically in the Battle of Balls Bluff starting with what the Union forces were trying to do there. Can you set the stage for us in October 1861? Well, in October, uh, you had a situation that was uh, fairly quiet for the most part. Uh, really, uh, from the time of um, 
the end of the Battle of Manassas when the two armies had pulled apart and the main bodies of those armies left each other alone for really until the following spring, Federals along the Potomac, Confederates down along Bull Run, there was a Confederate force in Leesburg watching the river crossings there because there were several good places to cross the river in the vicinity of Leesburg. Uh, Fords have five or six uh, good militarily usable fords, as well as the ferry sites, Edwards Ferry and Conrad's, which is now called White's Ferry. Uh, so anybody who controlled those controlled the river crossings. And, and we're, and we're course, talking about the side discipline. had to watch to make sure that the other side didn't use those river crossings to, to come across. Let, let me step in. We're talking now about the Potomac River. We're upstream from Washington, D.C. Yeah, Potomac. So we're on the border between Virginia and Maryland. And... This so this is strategic in the sense that either side that crosses gets. Yeah, at that point in the war, I think it's fair to say that Leesburg was one of the most strategically important cities uh, in the country because uh, things did tend to focus there. Okay, uh, it was quiet. the The two sides were more or less just watching each other across the river. Uh, in October, the Union force under Brigadier General Stone began to get heavily reinforced. They got Colonel Baker's brigade show up, a large brigade of four big regiments, the so-called California Brigade. Um, that came close to doubling the size of Stone's force virtually overnight, and that's something that would have gotten the attention of the Confederate commander, Colonel Nathan Evans, Shanks Evans. A few days after that, General George McCall, Federal General McCall, crossed a division up at Chain Bridge closer to D.C. and moved his division to Langley, Virginia, right where the CIA headquarters now are located. So that meant if you're the Confederate commander, Evans, Colonel Evans, that you have roughly 10,000 Union troops right across the river and another 12,000 who are about 25 miles away, connected by good roads, Langley being about 25 miles from Leesburg. And that means there's a whole lot of Yankees that are a lot closer to you than your own army is. And so Evans began to worry about being cut off. And that kind of is the, the situation at the time of our battle. There were a, a lot of Union troops in the area. A small Confederate brigade, maybe 2,800 men under Shanks Evans, whose job was just to watch the river crossing. Now, what? Now, you mentioned Stone. General Charles Stone is the Union commander, division commander. That's right. Division equivalent uh, across the river from Ball's Bluff. That's right. He's going to send his people forward. What's he trying to do? Well, uh, at first, he's not trying to do anything. Uh, the, the thing really starts, and this is where I have significant disagreement with the traditional story, because the traditional story is that General Stone had crafted a plan to take Leesburg, that he um, put this plan into effect on the 21st of October and moved his men forward, and that was the whole idea. It was pre-planned, it was deliberate, it was an attack on Leesburg. And I've come to the conclusion that none of that is true. Uh, what we have is a situation in which... Because he began to be worried about getting cut off by all these federal troops in the area, Shanks Evans, on the 16th of October, late on the night of the 16th, actually abandoned Leesburg. He took his brigade, put him under orders to march him south out of town. He left. And then he, uh, the next day he informed, he got around to informing his commanding officer, General Beauregard, that he was doing this. He left on his own authority, didn't get permission. He tells General Beauregard, who's not happy about it, and, and the end result is that within a couple of days, Evans is back. So Evans leaves, but then comes back a couple of days later. In the meantime, the Federals have seen that he's left, and General McClellan wants to see, are they really leaving Leesburg, 
or is this just some sort of a trap? So he sent General McCall from Langley to investigate, and that, uh, by the time McCall gets close to Leesburg to see what's going on, Evans is back. So there's a lot of confusion there at that time, around the 19th and 20th of October. Neither side knows quite what's going on. Um, McClellan eventually calls the whole thing off because Evans is back in Leesburg, and he tells McCall to go back. So Stone, at this point, we, we've got McCall ready to go back. It's a little, it does get confusing, doesn't it? Yeah. But Stone doesn't have the word yet. We'll take a break and come back and sort this out Okay. with Jim Morgan. We're going to have a commercial interruption, and we'll be back in just a few moments with Jim Morgan to talk about Ball's Bluff on Civil War Talk Radio. 